It's a tag team operation this morning. Good morning. We are in our second Sunday of Advent, and uh, today we're going to talk about 45 years ago. This year, 45 years ago, is the year that Rocky Balboa beat Apollo Creed. It's a big event, big event. Um, my parents have been married for 45 years now, and uh, I always remember their wedding anniversary by how many years it's been since Rocky won. Just kidding. But what we like about things like Rocky, what we like about the Avengers, what we like about our, our stories and our movies and our TV shows, a lot of times is it's the underdog. We like rooting for the underdog. Yesterday, the college football playoffs, we didn't really have a whole lot of underdogs when you might talk about the Alabama-Georgia game. Maybe that was underdog, maybe not, whatever. We do have the Cincinnati Bearcats are kind of an underdog this year. They're not from a big conference. They, they went undefeated, and they looks like they're going to squeak into the college football playoffs. Everybody likes cheering for an underdog, but we never really trust one, and there's good reason for. But when we see our movies, when we see Rocky, when we see whatever show it is you're going to watch, whether it's the, the fighting, whether it is the, the drama, and is that person going to end up with this person in the drama relationships, is it, you know, who's going to win, we know instinctively that that underdog is going to win. Why? Because that's the way the writers wrote the story. Today we're going to look at the story. Today we're going to look at the birth of our Savior. Last week, Scott talked about the Christmas incarnation. God becoming man. There's this term that's used sometimes, we call it the hypostatic union. And it's just a big way to say that Jesus is completely and fully God. And at the same time, Jesus is completely and fully man. And we can come up with a whole bunch of different analogies to try to understand it, but they all fall short because it's not God who put on a man's suit. And it's not a man who worked himself up to becoming divine. It's not he was God sometimes, man sometimes, or God that acted like a man, or man that acted like a God. Fully God, fully man. And we're going to take a look this morning at the divine aspect of that. The fullness of God. The whole God. And then next week, Scott's going to focus a little bit more, unless I'm way off base, Scott's going to focus a little bit more on the, the full, the manness of him. He's going to, we're going to be going through some of the, the, the lineage of Christ and what, what all of that meant and the, the humanity of him. But today we're going to talk about the fullness of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. John chapter 1, and on the back of your bulletins, you have some fill-in-the-blanks. I'll let you know uh, what those blanks are when we get to them, but the first couple of verses here, we're going to look at without going into any of the, the notes on the back. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with 
God in the beginning. These whole two verses, these first two verses, are so critical to the way we understand who Jesus was. Because John, writing later in his life, most likely after all the other Gospels have been written, most likely after a lot of the letters had all been written, John is writing these things down to a group of people who should already know this. And yet he's going to make very crystal clear exactly what he means. It's not just a bunch of extra words. I got in trouble during Boy Scouts when I was 11 years old for talking too late into the night on a camp out. And they made us write 500 words on why we shouldn't do that. This is not a whole bunch of fluff. You know, I will be very, 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 very quiet. You know, we're not doing that. We're, we're, John is, is making this as concise as he can to express the idea that he's trying to get across. In the beginning was the word. And we see a flavor of Genesis beginning to pop out. Because those first words take us all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God acted. He did. He created. He moved. He spoke. In the beginning was the Word. Sounds like Genesis so far. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And these phrases, and if you want to dive into the Greek of it, you can. But for time's sake this morning, what these phrases mean is you cannot say this any other way other than it is God, but it's not the Father. It is God, but it's the fullness of God. It is God, but there's a distinction here. We have with God at the same time we have God. And yet we was with God in the beginning, and yet the Word was God. And a lot of different uh, groups that would wrap themselves around the Bible, or a lot of different groups that would wrap themselves the idea of Christianity, will try to sit there and say, the original Greek actually says it was a God, because of the way it's done. Actually, the way the whole construction is within the Greek, is it has to be the way that we've got it written in our English versions. The way you see it in the English versions is the way it should be. So if you get knocks on the doors by people coming by and saying, oh, actually that meant it was just a God. He was with God in the beginning. He was a God. No. It is, he is God. And there's no other way that we can take that. And he was with God in the beginning. And we get that flavor back to Genesis. And we want to clarify that. We want to clarify that who we are talking about, Christ, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but who we are talking about is fully God. Because that's going to become so important later on in the story. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3. Through him all things were made. Now we could say, well, that's all sorts of things. That's all kinds of things. So let's take a look at the next little spot there. Without him, though, nothing was made that has been made. Again, John is making pinpoint crystal clear that... If Jesus was ever made, because that was a controversy in the early church, Jesus was made by God. He was begotten of God. He was, there was a time when he was not. No, 
Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is eternal. The Father is eternal. They are one. We're talking about the Trinity. Again, that's something we can try to come up with a bunch of analogies for, but they all fall short. Jesus has lived into eternity past. He will live into eternity future. The Father has lived in eternity past. The Father will live in eternity future. The Holy Spirit has lived in eternity past. The Holy Spirit will live in eternity future. But they are not three gods, but one God. They are three persons. One God. Again, if you're trying to wrap your head around it, let it go, because your brain will explode. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So we've got John right off the bat talking about the word. Fully God, and in him was life and light. And that's your first little fill-in-the-blank there on your bulletin. The word was life and light. And we get another flavor of Genesis popping up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God separated the light and the darkness. And he made day and night. And he put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. And then he had created the earth, and then he put all of these creatures. He filled the earth with life. In Christ is life and light. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Some versions say the darkness has not overcome it. And there's the same idea there of you can't understand it. You can't overcome it. You can't do anything to it. It is coming to affect you. It is coming to, uh, the light goes into the darkness. And if you ever think about it, uh, and, and a lot of the uh, junior hires like to do this, like, okay, let's grasp the essential concepts of the universe. Light, there's nothing that's actually, there's nothing that's actually darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. And darkness can't do anything, when we're talking about physical light, darkness actually can't do anything to light. You can't create more darkness, you can only pull the light away. And so when we say the light is shining into the darkness, but the darkness, it's not getting penetrated by the light. It's not being done anything by the light. The darkness is not understanding it, but the darkness is now also can't do anything against the light. So as Jesus comes into the world and he's going to enlighten all, you can't do anything to him. The only thing you can do is either shut your heart so the light doesn't penetrate it or open it up. And then John takes a little pause from talking about who Christ is to remind us Let's see what happened to lead up to Christ. There came a man from God, sent from God, whose name was John. This is not the gospel writer. This is John the Baptist. Verse 7. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. When you get up on the stage court, or the courtroom, and you're put on the, the witness booth, you are testifying this is what I know, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this is what I am aware of personally, from personal experience, from personal knowledge, from personal whatever. It's a testimony. John the Baptist sent from God to testify about Christ, to say, 
This is the one. Why did he do it? So that all might believe, or the, uh, so that through him, through Christ, all men might believe. And he himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. And uh, let's go ahead and go to the next verse. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world, that being Christ. John was testifying about this light coming in. He's paving the way. And the kind of the thought process you can get is you got a couple of different aspects. Uh, back then it might have been um, you would have people coming through the roadways and making sure there's no rocks in the middle of the roadways, making sure there's nothing in the path so that the, 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 the hero coming in or the king or the, the noble or whoever's coming in has nothing that's going to get in his way as he's making his way through through the city, through the towns, wherever. I was hiking a couple weeks ago in New Mexico. There was uh, some ice on the trail because it's New Mexico. It's up in the mountains and it gets icy there early. And uh, did a little slippage. There was something in my way, ice, and it took me down pretty good. And uh, you might see me walking with still a little bit of a limp. There were rocks in the trail. There were stumps in the middle of the trail. There were little spots where you had to curve in and out. John is coming to pave the way of people's hearts so that there's clear passage for Christ to come into their hearts. And we want that same clear passage for Christ to come into our hearts. We want to remove anything that's going to block the way from Christ to come into our hearts. This is basically a, a pep rally. This is getting the people ready. This is getting the folks' hearts ready so that when Jesus comes, they are receptive. Many were, many were not. Verse 10. John is still tagging his words very carefully here. He was in the world. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. Remember back before, all things were made through him. Nothing was made, nothing that has been made was made without him. He was in the world. The world was made through him. But the world, the world that he created did not recognize him. If you're sitting there creating a computer game, you're putting in all the coding and all this kind of stuff, and then you were to write yourself into the program, your own creation doesn't recognize you. Maybe a little bit more emotional example your children, who you bear, who you raise, turn their backs and say, I don't want anything to do with you. In fact, I'm going to show that I don't even recognize who you are. He was in the world, but the world did not recognize him. Verse 10, or verse 11 
He came to that which was his own. Not only just the world, but he came to the nation that God had pulled out of Egypt. He came to the nation that God had raised up and given a land and given instructions on how to live and how to worship. Stayed with them. Sent them people over and over to call them back to him. And they did not receive them. He was sent to his own and they did not receive him. The next deal on your bulletin, the next fill on the blank. The world divides, or the word divides, excuse me. See, when Christ comes in, he's going to divide people into two groups. It's those who believe and those who don't. And this is not a political affiliation. This is not red states versus blue states. This is not a uh, a sports affiliation. It's my team versus your team. This is, are you with your creator or are you against him? Are you sitting there saying, I am going to worship and serve and love God and love his creation, love the people that he's put in my life? Or are you going to say, I'm going to do things my own way? Did God really say I had to do it that way? Did God really say that I had to love others as I love myself? Did God really say that he's the one in charge? Did God really say I'm accountable for my actions to him? Because I kind of like doing my own thing. I kind of like doing what I want to do. And yeah, a lot of times it lines up. It lines up with what I read in the Bible. It lines up with the good values and the good morals and everything. But when it comes down to it, I'm going to do my thing, things my way. See, the word divides. He came to that which was his own. His own did not receive him. He came into the world. The world did not receive him. Verse 12. But to all who do, he gave, or to all who received him, to all those who received, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Adoption into God's family is granted to all. It's not just his people, his nation, the Jewish nation. It is now opened up. And as John is writing this, this is decades after Christ's resurrection and ascension. This is decades after the church has started. This is decades after the Gentiles We've already started being part of this community called the church where it's not just the Jewish people who get to worship God, but it's the Gentile people as well. And adoption is now granted to all. While the word divides, the word also saves. That's your next fill in the blank. The word divides, but the word also saves. God is not exclusive in who he brings in. But there is an exclusivity on how we can do that. See, we can't just sit there and say anybody gets in because we have rejected our Savior. We have rejected the Christ. We have rejected God himself. And now... He has opened up 
the door for adoption to those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. He's given the right as adoption, not because of your natural heritage. This is going to be talking to the Jews. It's not just because you get in because your parents were Christians. It's not you get in because of who you are. It's because now of who we know. See, Christ comes, fullness of God, to save us so that we who believe in him can have that adoption. We can be part of God's family. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision. We don't get to decide, you know what, I'm going to be in under my terms, under my way. God says, no, you come in under my terms. I am God. You are not. I am creator. You are creation. I am the savior, and I'm reaching out to you to be saved. Come to me. Not born by a human decision or a husband's will. Part of the human decision, but born of God. John will get into this later on in the gospel. John 3.16. Anyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that word again is actually the same word as above. And there's uh, several scholars out there who think that it's a, a dual implication there. You are born again and you are born above. You are born not just of flesh and blood, but you are born again of spiritualness. You are born again of heavenliness. You are born again into God's family. You are readopted. You are adopted into God's family. The word divides and the word saves. It's by God's doing, not ours. And then we get to one of my most favorite verses in Scripture, verse 14. Because up until this time, you're kind of sitting here saying, all right, he could have been talking about the word of God as it went out to the prophets and the word of God that was in the beginning that spoke creation to existence. But now John makes it perfectly clear. The word flesh it became. And I, I love the rendition there because we're talking, we see the word. And it almost, sometimes when you read the stuff in Greek, it almost sounds like Yoda talking, you know, uh, flesh it became. Um, but it became flesh. The word became flesh. The word of God who was with God in the beginning, who was all things created through him, became flesh. He wasn't already flesh. He became it. He became and flesh is the same substance as this right here. He became humanity. He became this. Fingers, toes, newborn baby sitting in a manger. And as John goes through this verse right here, he made his dwelling among us. Literally, he tented with us. 
And how spectacular is that? And we get this reference back to the Exodus. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were camping out, for lack of a better term, for 40 years. But right when they left, they go to Mount Sinai and they say, they're told to build the tabernacle. Build the place where God would meet with them. And they saw the glory of God coming down into the holy of holy places within inside the tabernacle and resting on it. And God was with his people. He tabernacled with them. He tented with them. And now John is saying, pulling back on that, that, uh, that analogy, that history, that remembrance, that Jesus Son of God is now dwelling with us. The Word became flesh. Again, we don't know how this is possible. We, don't, we can't grasp what it means for God to be fully God and fully man at the same time. And we get all these, these ideas in our heads about, well... I wonder if Jesus ever stubbed his toe. Because he was perfect, right? Well, he was fully human, fully God at the same time. I wonder if Jesus had to learn how to use a hammer and, and when his carpentry work, or if he just kind of automatically knew it. I wonder what he would have gotten on his math tests. What would his batting average have been? Would he have ever missed the baseball? Somebody once said, uh, I think his batting average would have been around 400, but that's just because he had a really good work ethic. Jesus was fully man with all that goes with that. And yet, the fullness of God as well. Fully God, fully man. We, and who's the we? John, who's writing this book and the disciples that he's referencing. We have seen his glory. The glory of the only begotten. The glory of the one and only. The glory of the only one who is God. See, when you say one and only, or only begotten, that word, if we say only begotten, sometimes we, we think the, the begotten aspect of it. And we think of a creation aspect. We think of something that's created, begotten of somebody else. The reference there is it's the only begotten, the only one who is the exact representation of the Father. And the only reason you're the exact representation of the Father is not only are you exactly like him, but you do what he does. And as John goes through his gospel, and every time he pulls this into account, he's referencing Jesus' relationship to our Heavenly Father, to God. He is referencing the exactness of the Godness of Christ. The one and only Son of God became flesh. And this is the point of the story where Rocky gets up off the mat because the music started up and you know he's going to win. 
This is the point in the story where the guy finally notices the girl and you know that they're going to get together. This is the point of the story where Captain America picks up a shield and you know that the Avengers are going to win. This is the point of the story where things aren't complete. But now you see how it's going to play out. And we have in our Savior, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of God. And he's not an underdog. We like the story of the underdogs only when we know the underdogs are going to win. We like the story of the underdog because the underdogs are going to win because that's the way the writers have made it. We are the underdogs. And we will lose except for our Savior has brought us to him and now we are on the winning family. We get to win because of him, because of who he is. This is not a man who raised himself up to the level of godliness because he trusted God so much and he worked real hard and he loved everybody. This is fully God saying, you guys can't do it. I will. And so here's our take-home truth for the day. Here's what we want to remember for this Christmas season. The perfect and complete fullness of God is perfectly and completely revealed in Jesus. As we're going through the Christmas season, we want to see the nativity and we want to remember God becoming flesh. We want to remember God stepping in to his creation. We want to remember God is the one who is doing the saving. And we see this in our Lord, our Savior, the one who became flesh, Jesus. We are not, or we are not the underdog any longer. And I've mentioned this before, but there's an old country song that says, I've read the back of the book, and we win. We win because of Christ. So as we're going through this Christmas season, remember that. Remember that it, this is the turning point in the story. This is the point of the story where, the, where we now see we have victory. And it's because of our full God, who was fully man, Jesus Christ, and his salvation, what he did for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for your love. We thank you for all that you do. We thank you, Lord, during this Christmas season for our Savior. Lord, help us, one Lord, to remember what you have done. Left your throne in heaven to have life and light and all that you bring brought to us. 
God, help us remember who you are in your greatness. And Lord, second, help us share that with others. Give us opportunities to speak about what Christmas really is. Give us the boldness to speak truth. Help us to love our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers. Help us to love them so much that we want to see them know who you are. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Let us join in singing our hymn of invitation, Thou Didst Leave Thy Throne. Please stand. after the service as well as our elders and if you'd like to pray with someone please feel free to come up and pray with us and um, if you'd like I sure hope all of you will join us for the meal uh, it's over in the DFC we have more food than can be eaten so there's no problem there so plan to join us and I hope you do, that you will let's have a closing prayer and again if you'd like to pray with someone uh, I'll be up front as well as our elders let's pray father we're thankful again for the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful that uh, his love for us was so great that he left the throne of heaven to come and be born in a manger, a stable. Now, Father, may we always grasp the significance of this great moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.